This is David Bateson, the voice of Agent 47, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 126 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, April 10th, 2022. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we welcome legendary developer Lauren Lanning on to discuss his career, E3's cancellation, industry acquisitions, and his thoughts on Xbox Game Pass and PlayStation Plus tiers. Prior to that, we'll be checking out the news in Xbox Game Pass's new family plan, Activision is upping pay for some of its workers, and Halo Infinite Season 2's impending arrival brings questions. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness are extended to Mr. David Whitaker, Fame 2K from Level 1 Gaming. Uh, David, one of the role models, at least for me, in the gaming industry as far as content creators go. Always positive. He's getting his flowers out there, showing up yet again over on Podcast Unlocked, a goal that I think many of us uh, in the Xbox content creation community have. Uh, but it's all deserved. He's, co- he's positive. He's good to people. Uh, he brings a lot of joy in, in all the places that he is. Uh, and I just really enjoy seeing him get the accolades that he deserves. So shout out to him for uh, all the good stuff that he does. David, if you do listen to the show, man, you're a role model. And I hope to, to one day be like you, my friend. Guys, plenty of housekeeping to get to. I took a much needed week off last week, and I appreciate those of you bearing with me. I did, of course, record the Lauren Lanning interview. You'll be hearing a trimmed version of that here at the end in the in the back half of this episode. Lauren was extremely detailed in the best ways. Uh, we got into some controversial topics. We debated some stuff. Uh, you'll hear a trimmed version of that, which is trimmed down to an hour or so, maybe a little under an hour. Uh, on this podcast. And then, of course, I'll drop the extended interview where nothing's cut out over in the YouTube's or on the YouTube channel, uh, kind of as a dedicated solo one-off type thing. And if I need to do that with any creators going forward, I will. Um, but it was just, it was too much for just a one podcast episode. In fact, I introduced the interview as if it would be the beginning of the episode, but we just went on for so long that you'll hear kind of a double up in, in this one. Uh, but it made sense. I didn't want to ax out all of his thoughts because, and you'll hear a few edits as you get to his interview here, but it was just, it was so detailed in his career elements that we weren't able to get to a lot of the gaming stuff that I was hoping to get to. Uh, throughout, but he dropped some incredibly cool factoids uh, about his career, about Xbox Game Pass, thoughts on E3's cancellation, and one of the interesting things is he called PlayStation Plus's deal for Oddworld Soulstorm devastating, and it's not quite what you think, but it was devastating to them in in many ways, and that is really interesting, that story. I'll leave it to you, a bit of a teaser there uh, for sure. It was also uh, Xbox Gamer, uh, Mr. Anubis, who requested that interview. And Anubis, I got to tell you, in the like two hours that he and I talked, I didn't even get to talk about Stranger's Wrath. And I'm so sorry I didn't get to your question, but I do plan on emailing 
Lauren and kind of getting a follow-up for your answer there. But thank you for requesting that interview because that is what led me to his doorstep uh, and getting to chat with him. And to anyone that is listening to XEP, if you enjoy the interviews, uh, please point me in the direction of more people you'd like me to have on the show. Um, no sky's the limit, of course. You know, let me know big and small. One of the hardest things is actually to connect with smaller creators that I don't know that people would be interested in chatting with because, you know, bandwidth, it's just me working here. And so let me know, or if you're in PR and you want me to check out one of your, your uh, developers, I would love to have them on. The whole goal of XCP is to expand our knowledge of the gaming industry. And I do that by talking to creators uh, as much as I do commenting on news. And so please point me in the right directions, guys. I love that. Before we get to news as well, uh, I got to just check in with you guys. It's been too long. I finished Elden Ring in the time that we had off, 160 hours into that. Absolutely love that game. I encourage you, if you're a newcomer to Souls games, check out the episode where I did uh, kind of go into detail Elden Ring for newcomers. That, that episode did pretty well, and I'd love for you guys to check that one out just as I talk about how to approach it if you're not akin to Souls games, because I was not a Souls player. This doesn't have me running to Dark Souls. This doesn't have me wanting to play Bloodborne. But 160 enjoyable hours in Elden Ring was an absolute blast, and I would love, love, love for more people to have that experience. Um, got a lot of achievements in the game, beat a lot of bosses, did a lot of great things. I'm a little annoyed that you have to get... To, to 1k the game you have to go through multiple endings that was a, is a bit of a turnoff um you can save scum it here and there but that's not really my jam uh it's not really how i choose to play although no that, that is not a diss to anyone because i think if 160 hours are put in shoot should absolutely be able to have the 1k uh to that effect i'm hearing a lot of people more experienced people or, or people that mainlined it they're beating the game in about 60 to 70 hours and i think even the best could do it in 30 um, I chose to let my time run up that high. I chose to kind of grind it, uh, but I absolutely loved it. It was a masterpiece of a game, 100% masterpiece of the game of a game. Plenty of flaws as well. If any of you uh, are hearing people kind of gatekeep, well, let's just tell Souls games are no. Those people are jerks. Um, there's so much to enjoy with with Elden Ring, uh, but there are plenty of flaws in it as well. And after playing it, I needed a palate cleanser, and I got that in the form of Lego Star Wars: The Skywalker Saga which I am giving away a copy of the game. If you like and retweet the live tweet for this episode over on Twitter, uh, I'll enter you in to win a copy of the game for Xbox. And I'll pick that about you know maybe halfway Wednesday or Thursday uh, as well. PR gave me a copy to give away, which is kind of cool because I bought the game, uh, played it on my own money. So all these impressions are my own. And then they gave me a copy to give away, which was kind of interesting uh, to see kind of which tier of creator I fell in for for their mind. It's kind of a back-end inside baseball. They, they will tier different content creators uh, to get certain codes when based on availability on occasion or based on uh, kind of soft launches of the game after the fact. It's just an interesting way they do it, but uh, certainly appreciative to be able to give back to you guys. I was planning to give one away anyway, so it's, it's kind of a win-win for me. Um, maybe I'll give away two. Maybe I'll give away two. I don't know. Comment on the episode. I'll, I'll dump in for a second on, on that one because I love this game. And I, and I want to share it with you guys. It is the absolute palate cleanser I needed. It brings so much joy as a Star Wars fan. It brings so much enjoyment uh, as a Lego fan. The game is easily the best looking Lego game, best playing Lego game. And it's just a collectathon of good times. And I'm, I'm just having a blast with it. Um, it's the game that I can just sit and relax and play. Whereas with Elden Ring, I would be leaning forward, focusing. And so this is is absolutely just a 
perfect game for this month. And quite simply, it is a game that I think is a game of the year contender as well, but in a very different way. Court Lalonde wrote in and asked, can a game like Lego Star Wars ever be taken seriously in a game of the year conversation? Uh, Court from the Xbox A channel, um, great podcast for them as well. I love this game and I think it deserves to be considered for game of the year, but much like the Forza games, I don't think it'll get a fair shake. We tend to have this criterion approach to game of the year. You know, does it do something super special and, you know, does it have this high arc or high narrative or whatnot? Um, and that tends to, to push it out of the mainline game of the year discussions, uh, or it goes to something that's super quirky and odd, like untitled goose game and, and, to me, that criterion approach for game of the year is is ineffective at judging what a true game of the year is. But equally relevant is the fact that, like, who cares, right? Like, I, I know your question wasn't meant in a mean spirit, but, like, I often stopped caring what a game of the year means because it just breaks down into the, well, the Metacritic is based on this, and then you get this conversation. And that, to me, this is a game of the year contender, man. I'm having an absolute blast with it. Uh, it and Elden Ring are my two favorite games this year for sure. I'm playing through through it with just this amount of joy and relaxation that uh, is special in the gaming verse. And that's that's a really cool vibe to have. Um, you know, shout out to Dying Light 2, which I don't think makes that cut, and yet put 45 hours into that game and had a blast with it. You know, it's, it's the, the odd and funny thing about games, uh, for sure. And I'm... I'm I'm enjoying the conversation surrounding Godfall. Can I tell you guys that I really want to play Godfall? It's 30 bucks right now. Um, I I want it. I want it real bad. I want it real, real bad, but I haven't bought it yet, and I'm probably not going to buy it. I guess I'm hoping for a Game Pass drop on that one, but I want to play Godfall. The game looks fun. It looks like a mid-six game where you could just go and button mash and have a good time and then be done, and there are games that I like like that. It's um I heard the analogy from Miles Dompierre, who kind of said it's a quack, a quack down. Ha ha. Ha ha. Untitled Goose. See, okay. It's a duck, whatever. Um, it's a crackdown three effect, right? Like it's fun to play. No masterpiece, you know, but fun to play. And if you just want to, you know, turn your brain off and go, that's, it's good for that. That's what I want Godfall for, but I, I haven't, I haven't pulled the trigger yet, but I do want to play it, you know, do want to play it. And, uh, to anyone that's trying to diminish anyone's joy on games like that knock it off knock it off if they want to play it let them play you know enjoy that kind of stuff um i'm in i'm interested in godfall i guess it's just what i'm trying to say there uh but yeah that's i guess that's just a, a good check-in on the game side for me i've been playing agent intercept a bit it's a fun indie game uh kind of capturing the old spy hunter realm and that's kind of what i've been doing just recovering i think it's been uh, a difficult time at work. The school year has been real tough. This this post-pandemic school year has been interesting. And then pollen season. And, and you know, just, just trying to, I needed to catch my breath, if if that is to say. And uh, I'm back on Cast Co-op and I'm hoping to appear on more podcasts coming up, you know, as a guest, because I think we're kind of arriving into the time of year where I can do that again. I needed, I, I took some time off from jumping onto other people's shows and I'm ready to go back. So if you, you need a voice in the Xbox or gaming community, give me a shout. And if you want me to want to, help me appear on other shows, you know, give them, give them a, a, a drop an ear, drop a word in their ear, drop an ear. Oh, look at that. Uh, yeah. Let them know. I would love to appear on more shows now. I'm in the, I'm in the zone, I guess you might say. Well, let's get to the news. 
Game Pass is creating a family plan. This comes from Jez Corden, who uh, had credible sources, multiple outlets, and then jumped on his reporting to kind of justify that they had their own sources as well. A family plan option is coming to Xbox Game Pass for five players and will likely be priced cheaper than the cost for having separate accounts. Microsoft is reportedly set to incorporate its family account system, which it already uses for its Microsoft 365 uh, subscriptions. Five players will reportedly be able to access the Game Pass plan, but it is unclear whether separate family subscriptions for Xbox Game Pass, PC Game Pass, or Ultimate versions of the service will go through. Uh, And they've been working on ways to distribute royalties for third-party publishers and license out elements of the Game Pass plan to make sure that those developers are not shortchanged. Now, this to me is a fantastic move. I don't think it's one that could have happened in 2017 when it was first announced. I know Todd Oxtra often writes in asking for some level or um, version of a family plan of Xbox Live Gold or, or Game Pass. This to me is not something they could have done right away, but it's absolutely the right move now when they are arriving on the doorstep of this Activision deal going through uh, when they're set to have at the moment over 20 studios and then you know next to over 30 studios when Activision Blizzard's thing goes through. This is absolutely the way to go. This allows family members to build relationships with the Xbox ecosystem and to build out achievements and saves and likely want to stick with games longer uh, in that Xbox login realm for a cheaper price for parents to get in. This is what's what's likely going to build customers for year on years on end, which is fantastic. I think it's a, a very good thing. It's not officially announced at this point, And I would expect that you hear this at some sort of summer announcement. We know E3 is no longer uh, going to be having a show this year, but we also know that E3 uh, has long been on decline. And with summer games fest and the, the, the Microsoft element of wanting to have a summer show, being a regular thing, uh, it would make sense that they would announce it at one of their shows. I don't know if they would do this in a spring announcement. We know I, it, there was going to be an April showing, and last I heard, that was bumped to May, and that was that's that's about a month and a half old when I heard that. So I've heard nothing new on that front. Maybe we hear something about this family plan in May, but this could equally be a relevant kind of summer games fest announcement. Hey, you got a, you got a family plan? Let's bring them in. Let's jump in there. Uh, and let you know your kids and you can game share with people your cousins it doesn't need to be in the same household reportedly it can be kind of across the country within the xbox ecosystem which is interesting Uh, i love that i just want more people to get to play games and that it would accompany the reported news that xbox series s and x's are now more widely available than any before and than ever before we know that they've been selling out countrywide uh, and worldwide you know with regularity but now they're staying in stock at digital retailers for days on end and i've heard kind of mixed discourse on that some saying oh is this a, a bad sign for xbox uh or or does this mean people aren't interested in purchasing it and i would actually push back on that a little bit i understand the argument it's a logical argument but when you c- couple it with the news that how much Microsoft invested in chips and silicon and uh, a number of the resources necessary to build consoles just prior to and after the pandemic started. Uh, It makes sense that now is the timeline they would become more available. Couple that also with the news that worldwide shipping is stabilizing a bit and people that are are kind of getting their, their shipments stuck in ports. 
have now found comfortable workarounds. This is a good thing. Xboxes are now more available and you want more people to play within your ecosystem. To me, this is a, a wonderful bit of news that people are able to jump in and purchase and check things out as they like. It couples very well with the family plan news. It couples very well with uh, a number of the games that are set to release through the rest of this year, through the third-party deals that are going to Game Pass, the news that we're getting, like games like Guardians of the Galaxy, which I was I was high on, but not as high as everybody else. The game had a lukewarm launch, which is a bummer for a, such a high-quality game. Apparently, according to Square Enix, it's finding new life in Game Pass. That's fantastic. I love hearing stuff like that. So more Xboxes being available, family plans becoming available reportedly uh, very soon for people to create saves and build their own story within a legacy of achievements and game saves. This is fantastic. Um, While tangentially related, having the Series S downstairs in my house has allowed me to game more and it gamed in a more relaxed fashion i'll play lego star wars upstairs when my wife wants the tv downstairs or if i want to play on my oled which is upstairs but then if i'm downstairs and just hanging out and she's reading a book or doing some work with her headphones on i'll just hang out in the same room and i can jump back and forth between systems and not having to carry a memory card or not having to worry about anything because cloud saving it's just a real joy and it brings an ease to gaming that uh, has never been there before and while you've been able to do that for some time, I'd not experienced it. And it just reminds me yet again, the ease and comfort that I have gaming kind of in the Xbox realms and platforms and cloud saves are just fantastic. And when you have something like a family plan that lets you build those saves and they stay there forever and you never lose it, it's like, oh, I can step out of the ecosystem for a bit and then step back in later on. And uh, it really lends comfortable thought processes to where if you've got multiple systems from multiple manufacturers, if you've got a PS5, you got a Switch, and you want to jump ship and play games on there for a little while and then come back, your saves are still there. You didn't have to worry about sell- if you sold the hardware, your, your account is still there. If you log in via cloud, it's still there. That's a really nice kind of, I think, comfort level to have with the ecosystem. And I would imagine we, we see that happening more and more, but we don't hear about it as much because it's just those nice quality of life elements, which is, which is really cool. Speaking of quality of life, Activision is set to up pay for a number of its workers. Activision Blizzard told staff that it would be uh, upping their pay for roughly 1,100 quality assurance testers. They'd be converted converted over to full-time and bumped to at least $20 an hour. This, of course, coming on the back of a number of different elements of worker activism with people at Raven Software uh, and a number of the developers around Call of Duty getting laid off or going on strike in protest of their working conditions. Uh, They created a union called the Game Workers Alliance, something that Jason Trier is very commonly reporting on, and it was he that broke this story. Um, We know Epic Games did something similar with their their studios and their QA people uh, several months back. This is a good sign, I think, particularly given that Microsoft is set to acquire Activision when that deal does go through. Microsoft has publicly stated that they would not be interfering or pushing back on any type of unionization uh, and that they want their studios to have that healthy relationship within them. To me, this is a very good thing. Uh, oddly, Lauren Lanning talked a bit about this in his studio about how uh, Microsoft is letting people be happy as they create games, and that is then going to help create better products. And so you'll you'll hear what he had to say on that one as well. But I was very glad to see this. This is a good move by Activision. Of course, it was forced by a number of legal precedents uh, and battles. And I hate that those employees are having to go through it. But I argue this is a big win 
prior to the Microsoft merger because it sets a precedent and Activision is still having to clean up its act there. Um, it piggybacks onto a question that Todd Oxford did write in where he said with Xbox having over 30 studios, once the Activision deal closes, do you think Xbox continue to just let studios have minimal oversight with deadlines seeming to get missed and very few first party games released thus far? seems like there something has to change. Now, Todd, you're asking one question. I'm equating it to another. And so I'll get to both. I promise. Um, to me, as Microsoft acquires more studios, there does need to be a better job at having oversight so you don't have dates slip. When you look at how Halo Infinite launched, they did a good job getting that game out the door, given where it was. I mean, I've talked to people on the back end. That game was in a bad place. So getting it out the door, great. Uh, some of the delays, eh. news out of the state of decay developers, uh, which is a story to continue watching, by the way, because you've heard two discussion points on it and the person that was vilified there in the, the state of decay working conditions element has left and so part of it is like yo activision uh is a symptom of a bigger industry problem and microsoft has been working to address it think about the talent they gave up in passing on moon studios moon studios would have brought in incredible talent with the ori developers and they passed on it because of the studio culture set by the two leaders within that studio. And that to, to anyone should be a good sign. They're not willing to pick up more baggage in some ways. The counterpoint to that is they're picking up Activision Blizzard, which has a number of legal battles there. Um, I think Microsoft themselves precedent as far as working conditions is a positive one. And this is a good thing for Activision Blizzard and the gaming industry. The more particular question is, do they need more oversight? Yes, they do need more oversight. And Xbox needs to make sure they have the right people in place to do that. Um, I think confidence is a little bit shaken right now in Matt Booty, who oversays, who, who has overhead over uh, a couple of the studios there. And then you're hearing about stuff that's weird. Uh, Fable kind of having its own Rocky stuff. Everwild having Rocky stuff. State of Decay having Rocky elements. You know, do we need to have somebody more hands-on to make sure that deadlines are getting hit. There's an argument to be made for yes on a business sense. There's an argument to be pushed back on and saying, hey, we don't want crunch culture. We're all upset that Halo Season 2 hasn't arrived yet, this, that, or the other. But they've openly said developer health is more important to them. And there's a balance there because if, the, if developer health is important, that is more enticing for people and talent to come work for them. Good. If you're missing deadlines, that's not good on a business sense. However, if you control enough studios and IP, all right, there you go. That's a good thing. And people will still flock to your console anyway, because you've got enough first party stuff hitting in full cadence. I think what's happening right now, Todd, and to anybody else kind of in this realm, is you're in the early days of Game Pass. Not to say that it wasn't made five years ago, but in what Game Pass is truly going to be, and what these acquisitions are truly going to do with this full cadence of delivery and these family passes and cloud gaming, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're kind of in this new territory where developer health is priority one, hoping to make the best content while you have industry consolidation. And you can look at choices like transitioning to Unreal Engine 5 for a number of their studios. As that goes public now, if you miss that news, that is now a publicly available tool. A lot of talent wants to work with that. Well, if you make your, your studio culture less crunchy, using more more tools that people are comfortable with and happy with when you've got engines like id tech like slipstream like unreal engine 5 and you bring people in and you don't press them they, they want to come work for you so you bring the best talent in again the counterpoint 
the fruits of that labor are not yet seen. Right now we've got Forza Horizon 5 and Halo Infinite as the two in this generation releases, and they're top-notch games. Like, the gameplay in both, the visuals are both fantastic. But, you know, Halo's light on content. And how long is it going to take to deliver on the best of those engine uses? Well, you haven't had that much. Flip side, you look at Sony. Dude, they're producing top-tier games left and right. Days Gone was their mid, right? Days Gone's a good game, but it was their mid. And so th- there's a lot to be had there. And I think anybody that's hesitant deserves to be hesitant. But no one can argue the value uh, of Game Pass or the direction that Microsoft is going and picking up an Xbox Series S or X leads you to hundreds of incredible games at your fingertips. So, you know, it's it's a a worthy question to have, Todd, and anyone else that's kind of in that vein. But also equally relevant to say that, hey, strides are being made, efforts being made. You, you got to respect it where it's happening. I mentioned Halo Season 2 in that discussion, and that leads to uh, a lot of thoughts as Halo Infinite Season 2 launches on May 3rd, day before Star Wars Day. Interesting choice there, but whatever. Uh, It's expected to fix a number of different elements of content uh, that people are waiting for with new maps, weapons, weapon balances, uh, modes, which I'm excited for. I just want Battle Royale at this point because I'm just having so much fun in in Halo Infinite no build mode. Halo Infinite. (laughs) Haha, Fortnite no build mode. I want something like that for Halo Infinite. But, um, you know, 3-4 Industry Community Manager, uh, Community Director Brian Gerard said that we understand the community simply uh, out of patience and frankly i think understandably tired tired of words we just need time for the to get details sorted out and then we can certainly share as much as possible end quote i absolutely agree with him we are tired of words it's time to put your money where your mouth is i jumped in on a couple uh halo infinite here and there for some of the weekly rewards and then others i was like meh not interested and that's okay sometimes there is a pressure that we put on ourselves to only play one game. I've jumped out of Avengers for a little bit and then jumped back in when they had the 2.3 patch. 2.3 patch, by the way, great, uh, looking good. But I've jumped in and out of games plenty over the last few weeks. My, like my regulars, haven't touched Sea of Thieves in a while. In and out of Halo Infinite. Playing a lot of Fortnite now that no build is there. In and out of uh, uh, of other games. I don't know. It's, it's fine. You don't need to only play one game. And the pressure to make your game as a as an everyday thing is not fun. And I don't, I don't like that. Right. Like I'm actually been pushed away from games if it's my job to play that game. And I don't want that. So, you know, take your time. If a game's not for you right now, I often want to tell this to Avengers players like, yo, if you're not feeling it, stop playing it. Stop playing it. It's cool. Come back when you're ready. Uh, If you're not feeling Halo Infinite right now, come back in season two. Right. Come back when they got a mode that's there for you or an armor augment that you're interested to. I hear you're going to do a lot more armor customization in season two. I've seen a little bit of that and it looks really good. Like it's very exciting. I saw some core swaps that they were doing on the back end. Um, That is the benefit. I think of interviewing lots of people is you get to see stuff, which is cool. Um, You get to find out stuff, which is interesting. And that's kind of cool for sure. For sure. The other Halo topic is the Halo show. I didn't, I haven't talked about it on XEP just yet. That show is decidedly meh. Um, episode one was good, not great, and definitely weird. Episode two was an absolute travesty. Episode two was hot trash in the summer. I hated episode two of the Halo show. I thought it was just awful. And it's weird that it's awful um, because Pablo Schreiber is good. He's a good actor. Um, some of the effects are really good. Some of the visuals are really good. Others are really bad. And it's weird. Uh, Halsey has a spray tan that is just atrocious. 
Uh, some of the choices in writing are strange. The helmet being off so often is odd, but different. But Pablo Schreiber himself, good. Some of the outfits look incredible. Others look really cheap. It's just weird. Now, the, the show runners for season one are already out. Uh, so that is good, I think. If they've got a season two and they're ditching these guys, good. It needs to go. The writing's all over the place. The acting is all over the place. Um, but I really do like Pablo Schreiber. Like, he's a good master chief they just need to do different things with him the head nods need to be there more helmet time stop talking about well i mean there's certain like why is it called halo at this point some of the stuff they haven't mentioned the word forerunner it's just a mess the nudity in there feels odd um everyone's talking about master cheeks and that's clever and funny uh but like why is it in there it just feels strange the show feels odd and we thought we thought there was a possibility for mandalorian level storytelling You're getting one level above CW, and CW is trash writing. Um, It's fun, right? But it's trash writing. Something about Halo feels odd, but I have a lot of hopes for Season 2, if that makes sense. Um, I could go way more in-depth, and I'll do that on a different episode, I think, when we've got more context, because I want to sit and watch uh, the rest of the season, because it's showing promise. Season or Episode 3 shows promise, but I I don't want promise. I want delivery. Uh, And then I think it's fair to say, it's a fair question, not one I subscribe to uh, as far as a sentiment, but it is a fair question. Like is do the people in charge of Halo transmedia, does Kiki Wolf kill need to be exited or, or adjusted in her position? Does body Ross to do uh, these people need to be moved around because the, the halo experience across these mediums is not what people want. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't subscribe to that answer fully just yet, but does we need a Kevin Feige? We need a Dave Favreau. We need a Dave Filoni. John Favreau, Dave Filoni. We need a Feige level presence with Halo as an as a as a medium. And I don't know that we have that right now. Someone to say this is Halo, this is not Halo. This is the plan, this is not the plan, and this is how we're going to do it and execute on it. Maybe that's happening on the back end, but the delivery on the front end is not working. It's not connecting. Um, this feels like the X-Men franchise where it's all over the place and that's lame and not fair and not fun for fans. So uh, let me know your thoughts, guys. I, I've talked for a bit. I've, I've rambled a bit, um, but let me know your thoughts on all of these topics because I am curious to say the least. Uh, let's knock out a few questions and then get you to that Lauren Lanning interview. Of course, again, I remind you that's the trimmed version. The more extensive one will come out on YouTube, but trimmed is still an hour. So oof. Uh, good stuff though, really and truly good stuff in it. Uh, Edward Varnell says, do you think if Microsoft fall and holiday releases along with Nintendo releases will make it hard to decide what to play or buy? Will it benefit everyone? Um, good question, Edward. Uh, always, as always, rising tides lift all boats. Um, you got to think that whatever Sony and Nintendo bring to the, to the plate, Microsoft will have had Redfall and they'll have Starfield for the holiday. Um, I'm thinking Redfall is September based on what I've, what I'm bumping into Redfall of September, uh, but who knows, right? Like everything's changing all around. Uh, but Starfield seems set on its date in November, and I think that's going to be a good one. So Microsoft's going to be just fine for this holiday. You got to think that uh, as Forza Horizon is going to have an expansion by then, at least I think it is. Uh, Forza Horizon is going to have an expansion by then. Halo Season Three will be out by then. Uh, you'll have Starfield. You'll have Redfall. Microsoft's going to be just fine for this holiday. Uh, for sure. You got to think also that Gotham Knights is releasing on multiple platforms. Sony, I don't know what they've got 
for this year because that Ragnarok is the one and it looks like Ragnarok might be pushed. I'm not sure with Breath of the Wild 2 getting pushed. Uh, Nintendo always has something up their sleeve. I mean, they could always just redump some some old games onto their system and people will buy it. I, I do not understand the Nintendo love. Edward, you're part of a cult and I need you to, to handle that, my friend. Um, but I love you. I really do love you. You're, you're my friend. I love you. Uh, yeah, I, Microsoft's going to be fine. I, I don't think people are going to have a hard time choosing what to buy. I think they'll kind of be sold and word of mouth is everything. So it's also a matter of what's available. If PS5s are sold out, people are going to buy Xboxes, right? Uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. Samuel Adams from the Exhibition and Xbox podcast. He says, what kind of games are the top of your backlog right now with big releases out of the way? It seems like it's a perfect time to dig back into some games that might have slipped through the cracks. Great question, Sam. Please answer it as well. Let me know in the comment section or on Twitter what, what you are diving into with your backlog. Uh, when I finish with Lego Star Wars, I'm sitting on Cyberpunk. Uh, I do want to play Cyberpunk. I've, I've kind of got that in my back wheelhouse to play for sure. Maybe Shadow of the Tomb Raider. I don't know. That news of the new Tomb Raider from Crystal Dynamics gave me pause. Uh, as far as what I know is going on at Crystal Dynamics, remind you, we had Brian Wagner on the show a few weeks ago. Uh, and then I talked to somebody at Crystal Dynamics separate from Brian that is not an interview public um, to hear some very interesting stuff going on there. Uh, I have curiosity, but that curiosity led me like, do I feel like playing Shadow of the Tomb Raider? Um, the gameplay is great. Story is weird. So, you know, maybe that one, but definitely Cyberpunk for sure. That is absolutely on my list. Um, and I'm kind of debating what else to do after that. You know, like I do want to play Godfall. Like, again, I haven't bought it. I probably won't buy it yet, but I do want to play Godfall. You know what it is? I'm waiting for that Christmas gift. I'm waiting for somebody to say like, here's Godfall, go play it. And I'll be like, yay. Um, but I don't want to buy it myself. You guys ever do that where it's like, yo, if I get this game, I'm, I'm playing the mess out of it, but I can't bring myself to play it that's where i am with godfall but yeah cyberpunk and godfall are my two that i i really want i think uh would it would answer your question but i'm enjoying lego star wars that's where my mind is uh for a little bit for sure for a little bit for sure uh let's see sam ed court todd i think i've answered all of your questions there shout out to game positive he was really excited for the lauren landing interview shout out to xbox mom as well always brightening my timeline also you guys are great um, I'll encourage you before we get to this Lauren Landing interview, please go check out some of the other interviews I've done across the gaming industry. I am so proud of the interviews at XEP. I've been just debating how to get them onto YouTube. Do I keep coupling them with, with the show, like the regular show with me talking, or do I split them off? But um, the, just the, the voices that I've gotten to, sh to share with over the years, all of the Player One podcast, Stephen Frost from... Uh, digital eclipse coming in on, on the last episode getting to talk to brian wagner from crystal dynamics and uh, even as far back as talking to gabe weigel of of gamers outreach or steven spawn of able gamers i mean i've really just enjoyed interviews for this show and so uh, if you if, if you enjoy them please go check them out if you like interviews please make sure xcp is in your your podcast list of course rating it on Spotify and iTunes means the world. My boy, Mr. Bad Bit, always talks to me about that. And his show's getting almost 300 for the Trophy Room over on Spotify. I would love to have a fraction of that success. You know, if I have goals of wanting to one day be on Unlocked and stuff, um, I need to make a bitter, bigger splash and help XEP grow. And I do that uh, by way of talking to people and you guys. You guys are the key to all of that. And it means the world that, uh, you know, even five people listen. 
right? Like that means the world. And so thank you all for, for listening to XCP. Heartfelt. Uh, when I take a week off, I get kind messages from you guys. It's just, it's just amazing. Well, I think that's going to be it for my portion of the show leading into Lauren's interview. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at InsipidGhost. You can email me insipidghost at gmail.com. And of course, the Xbox Expansion Pass on all your podcast services. If you're listening to it on one of them now, maybe subscribe in another place too. Enjoy Lauren Lanning's interview here. It'll feel like an episode reset. Enjoy it. Take care, everybody. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I want to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness are extended to my guest, one of the industry legends, Mr. Lauren Lanning, co-founder of Oddworld Inhabitants. Lauren, how are you? I'm great, Luke. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me on. I'm ecstatic to have you on. It is a listener requested interview, which makes me that much more excited because I was familiar with you uh, from a number of different projects throughout the gaming industry. And gamers may know you from tentpole titles way back in the PlayStation 1 and PC era through to the Xbox launch title uh, of Munch's Odyssey. And most recently with with, uh, Oddworld Soulstorm, there are any number of places that people might be familiar with you. But uh, I... I don't know where to start. I do want to tell listeners that we're not going into everything and you must check out this incredible three hour interview with Lauren uh, from Ars Technica. That was just super insightful onto your career. Lauren, how do you prepare for a three hour interview? I have to know that. I don't, <laughs> you know, that's, they're usually, uh, people usually send me questions ahead of time or, you know, the uh, Jim, our, our PR guy will hand them over. Here's the question. I almost never, read ahead of time mm-hmm. and um uh it, it, part of that's just time and pressure you know it's like i'll mm-hmm. be okay you know <laughs> i got too much other shit to do but the other part is um there's something about spontaneity and just the reflection of thought as you realize it mm-hmm. you know this is uh, just what i feel so um if it was if it was something that was going to grind into technical specs or something like that i'd really have to review you know but history is easy to recall and uh, moments are easy to recall so as long as the questions uh provide the breadcrumbs you know i'm happy to chew them up well breadcrumbs galore breadcrumbs galore and, and goodness gracious looking back it was just wild to try and track you know when you do your research uh first game you launched that that i could take was abe's odyssey back in 1997 uh is that accurate that's right that yeah. is right. And that is that never, com- never built, never was on a game development before that. That was that's the first of, game I ever worked on. You know? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. That was your first realm. You had a background that took you through uh, certain military contracts, different types of animation and digital animation. Uh, it, it, somehow, some way, if you go quickly, just kind of sum up some of your touchstone projects leading up to Abe's Odyssey. I would love to hear that. So, uh, sure. So I was I was really sort of a, a storyteller in search of a medium, you know, and it began with painting, right? Not to go through the whole thing, but it was really, I was interested in in um, incapable photorealism, meaning things that didn't exist, but when you looked at them, you thought they did, you know, that, you know, that type. And 
this was in the eighties. So as technology started progressing, um, the idea of, of creating, uh, became more than just a camera or pencils and, and paints, but it became uh, computer graphics. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. it was equally terrifying as it was exciting. <clears throat> and people had been trying to uh, convince me of computers earlier, but it, it was really seeing that they could reduce scope and reduce uh, effort reduce time to do things, and most importantly, allow a lot more iterations to get something good. You know, we're in the old mediums, you know, canvas or something, you can only mess with it so far, and mm -hmm. then you ruin the piece. <laughs> There's no undo. And uh, so into projects, you know, that led me to Hollywood from New York. And arriving in Hollywood, I just got there at this terrible time when all the, um, the three, three of the biggest computer graphics companies at in the day in North America, were all acquired uh, in kind of a, a funny Canadian go public story, but it ultimately wound up tanking them all. They all went out of business at the same time, and that was like right a month before I arrived in Hollywood to jump into the business. Mm -hmm. So it was like, oh my god! And uh, so I went back to school, and that's what led me to aerospace, and I didn't expect this but i learned something very valuable there i mean first of all i never expected to be getting a call from someone from aerospace but people didn't know the software of 3d uh 3d animation you know software mm -hmm. and back in that day and we're talking 80 80 uh, 88 89 and so i just get this call it's like we heard you know the software i was like yeah and i you know, the artist interview really goes into this, but the, the short of it was, was that the only place I was living on credit cards at the time, which is just a terrible pattern to be in, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and I got this call and I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, you know, the software. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, well, why don't you get down here? You know? And I was like, okay. And I was literally you know, like mm -hmm. living in debt. And, um, and that turned me on. It was the TRW Aerospace Visualization Lab. And what they were doing was they were visualizing military space weapon projects that were going on under um, Reagan, President Reagan. Mm -hmm. And I never thought I'd be doing something like that. But the, the most, but it was basically how, how pretty can you make this look? You know, so right. I was still just learning the software. And I was like, anything that I had an opportunity to use at that time was extremely expensive machines. You know, they were like 80 grand for the SGI and another 80 grand for the Wavefront software that was running on it, all Unix-based. So it was, it was not easy access at that time. And, and um, so anything I could do on the machine, I just wanted to look as great as possible. And so then it became like satellites and other you know, brilliant pebbles and particle weapons and shit like that. And I was like, ah, oh, we can make this look cool or we can, you know, whatever. And without going into my sort of uh, philosophical struggles, you know, with just the idea of doing things like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, that that's a granularity we don't go, need to go into now. But what it taught me was that you could uh, visualization was extremely powerful because what we were doing in the aerospace was we were basically making what I called commercials for five people or commercials mm -hmm. for five generals. And if they 
if they understood what it was, then the, the company TRW might get a you know literally billion dollar contract or more to build this stuff. And so visualization became a very important thing in technology because it was allowing really hard concepts to become visible and not just with paintings and diagrams and storyboards or a narrative speaking over technical documents. It was like, you got to see how it worked. You know, you got to see it. And that, that I was just looking at aerospace to build a reel, you know, to get a good reel going. Cause like Rhythm and Hughes wouldn't hire me. <laughs> they were the only uh, company at the time that I was really interested in working with. And, uh, and I thought they were working on the cool projects and stuff and they were, had fallen out from, digital productions and Robert Abel and Associates and Omnibus for anyone, you know, old timers in the industry will remember all those names. But uh, in learning how you could use imagery to sell bigger projects and as a wannabe, as really this like thirsty wannabe storyteller, um, I think a lot of those desire was just shaped by life experiences and then understanding the potential role of the artist, you know, in the modern world and throughout history, like where's the real value of what the artist brings. And so I was like, huh, you know, I want to tell stories and I'm learning about how you can sell bigger projects and, and how, you know, a three minute video could be worth a billion dollars if you had the, the means to execute on it, you know, mm -hmm. the, the promise of what you're selling. And so um, when I got to Rhythm and Hughes, I always thought, Finally, you know, the, the aerospace work got me a good enough uh, reel, you know, video reel of my work to uh, finally get me a job at Rhythm and Hughes. And they had turned me down like three times already. And that's just a, a uh, um, take that into, I, I'm realizing visualization is very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, becoming a content creator is very powerful. F film is extremely challenging. And then seeing what was happening with video game technology, I realized we could take, we could sort of use the projects that we were doing for theme parks and turn that into a business plan to start a video game company. And I actually tried to do that, you know, with uh, Rhythm and Hughes, I think, but they were just very entrenched, you know, in, a, in lots of people and lots of business and television and film. And, and um, so I, I felt like the, the best way to do it was mm -hmm. just start from scratch so that from the DNA up, you can start a game company. And at the time I was writing all these different stories that were turning into um, just sort of a, a, a library of assets of story pieces, mm -hmm. uh, you know, shots, moments, character quirks, just all these different ideas, taking notes and compounding them. And eventually that started shaping into this property um, that, was, that, we, that became Oddworld. And after five years at Rhythm and Hughes, uh, I convinced Sharon McKinnon, Ars Technica really goes into detail on this stuff, but I convinced her to start Oddworld and that we could do these games and that the power of the hardware was just getting to the place where we could del deliver this sort of higher fidelity rendering because we wouldn't be doing real-time 3D, which we didn't bother telling the investors and stuff at the time because I knew everyone wanted to see real-time 3D. But because we understood 3D so well at that time, I knew it was all going to look the same. Well, okay. So let me pause you there. Yeah. Oddworld and Abe, they're tentpole titles uh, and images in the people's mind from all the way back to PlayStation and Xbox. They're critically acclaimed commercial successes. Uh, and you're just getting up to that. But when you look now, 
back at that legacy, is it surreal to think about where you were then as far as having to pitch your own company to make 3D images and, and, and take it into the next realm as you know, PlayStation 3D were coming about? Is it surreal to look back at that legacy? Um, in some ways, but, but in ways that might not be expected, like it was easier to get money then. <laughs> you know, like it, it was, you know, and as industries mature, it gets harder to get money. Uh, How so? Is this the idea of the smart money and dumb money? Yeah. So, okay. and, and also opportunity for an industry and the mm-hmm. big shift that PlayStation was bringing, you know, kind of 3DO promised it and PlayStation delivered it, really, mm-hmm. right? Was CD-ROM, which meant no longer, you know, 256 k of mm-hmm. or, or uh, you know 256 uh, yeah a lot of times it was like 256 k of memory or really tiny amounts of memory that uh, cartridge games were using and i was just blown away at what people were able to do with that mm-hmm. within such a tiny amount of memory turning into really long experiences you know like mm-hmm. look at mario or something you know hundreds of hours people would spend and uh but it was all, it was all coming off a disc with really limited memory, you know, and so that that chemistry just fascinated me, and so at the time, video games, the one thing that the industry knew was that it was all going to go three D, and games were going to get a lot more expensive, and teams were going to get a lot bigger, and um, it was going to, as people would talk about it in a day, evolve out of the garage. Mm-hmm. And it was already past that point, but people would still sort of talk about it in that context, you know, like EA was already huge, and, you know, big companies existed, but uh, it was still like small teams, you know, a million dollar titles were really rare. And, uh, and so we went out and we said, well, let's, let's, what, what do we think it would take? How smart do we think we could be? And how much do we think we could do it for? And we came off with a figure of like for three and a half million dollars, we think we can deliver a game. Mm-hmm. And um, and it because we had the 3D experience and we had experience in managing large teams, and Sherry had just Sherry was actually legendary in computer graphics in Hollywood. Uh, before I was, when I was nobody, I mean totally mm-hmm. nobody, and so the credibility of you know I was bringing the creative and Sherry was bringing the producing. It was all this history of winning awards and, you know, highest quality graphics. I think Sherry McKenna had the most Clio awards of anyone in the world, personally, which was, uh, you know, the best in annual television commercials. And uh, so so Sherry just had this incredible legacy. And I was just looked like, you know, maybe a new young guy on fire that was really passionate about making the shit and had done some really good stuff. And Mm -hmm. uh, in that chemistry, money was coming at us few few good things come without friction and uh and so that launched odd world and we moved out of la up onto the central coast of california to join another company that was owned by the same investor that was backing us and um ultimately together you know we we were able to get abe out the door the first one in 97 so that was the that was the first one in 97 you followed it up a year later no pressure oh my Uh, god which is wild when you think about the turnaround time there. Uh, yeah. 
those were ten tentpole PlayStation titles, and then all of a sudden you're a launch title on the new rival on the block with with the first Xbox. Uh, why the transition? Is that an awkward transition? Can you tell me about the decision to to make the switch? And and did well, anything not go well there? <laughs> a lot of things didn't go well, you know. Like when you were asking me, you know, when you go back to the same surveillance, like so much of it seems the same as today because it's it's always really hard, you know. Mm-hmm. It's always no great products get delivered easily. You know, let's look at, you know, Tesla or SpaceX, or, you know, how it, it takes that or the Olympics, you know, people really going for the gold. Um, it's never easy. Like no one just says, you know, I showed up at the Olympics and it was happening. I ran a race and I won, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen. Right. It only happens with people who are training the hardest and working the hardest and really want it and going for it. And I thought the success of the first game of Apes Odyssey was going to give us a little more cushion, a little more buffer. What I failed to see, what, to forecast, was that it, the exact opposite was going to happen. You're now 50% owned by a public company. That public company has um, annual, you know, quarterly margins it needs to make, profits it needs to make. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we were in a window where some of the biggest titles that were due under the publisher at the time was GT Interactive were um, slipping the Christmas date. And if you can imagine, this is like one of them was uh, Epic, you know, with Unreal. And mm-hmm. if you can imagine, Epic wasn't even an office yet, right? Like if you were talking to like Mark Rain and Tim back in that day, you know, one's in this city and the others in a, in a different city and GT didn't really, they were like, this company doesn't exist. And it's like, well, they kind of exist, you know, but they work remotely. It was right. truly a virtual company a hit way ahead of its time, but we were all struggling to get shit done. And um, it just so happened that some of the biggest titles slipped for Christmas, but we delivered. Mm-hmm. And then we had, you know, pretty, uh, you know, we got a home run at Christmas and, but the way the, the uh, board uh, of the publisher looked at it was what was your biggest performers this Christmas and who can we rely on next Christmas? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't see that coming at all. Like I thought if we made a game and we had success, um, we would be afforded a little more confidence and leeway to now build a better game next, you know, like really a, a, a better game. And actually the, uh, Texas was a better game, you know, it was, it was, uh, mm-hmm. I think the crowd, you know, there's been lots of, uh, polls and stuff, but it seems like that's, that was one of the favorites, but because of that pressure, that pressure was now, you know, put to us of like, you can do it, just deliver the next game in a quintology. And I was thinking more of Soulstorm's story rather than Abe's Exodus story. And so if you, if you think of it reverse like that, you go, I need, this is a three-year production that we're going to enter into. And it was like, yeah, you can get it done by Christmas, whatever you need. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're in that spot. It's like, it's going to cost a lot more. we got to hire a lot of people. No problem. Go mm-hmm. for it. You know, it was like, oh shit. And so now if you, if you look at the two scripts of each game, I was thinking more along the lines of Soulstorm, like really, what does this prove? How is it planting deeper seeds in a, in a more miserable journey for Abe, who's going who's to bear through it? You know, mm-hmm. I really wanted that set up. It wasn't just an IP that was 
you know, a comedy, right? Or a mm-hmm. dark comedy. And uh, so now we only had nine minutes, months, and we had killed ourselves to deliver Abe's Odyssey. I mean, man, people, we all worked so hard, which was very common in game development, you know. Um, but we just worked so hard. So we were ready for a break and it didn't come. In fact, now it was the, the sprint of your life. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, shit. Now, I guess you could have said no, you know, but you have 50% partners and it can really. Yeah, bills need to be paid and whatnot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't, when the relationship was on such a high, we didn't want to take it low, you know? Sure. And um, so we said, we'll do it. And, uh, and then I was like, shit, how do we do it? And so, so we were taking the fundamentals of like the brew and the addiction and, and the this and, and uh, just, you know, try to manage. It. And uh, so I think that that's a long winded answer. Sorry, but to, to a pretty concise question that you had. <laughs> well, <laughs> in arriving with the Xbox launch uh, to, to oh, make right. the jump to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I went down that rabbit hole. So that was, so now we come out of, exodus and playstation 2 is starting to ramp in and um it's not out yet but uh if you recall phil harrison showed it early and swore it was real a early demo of metal gear solid 2 mm-hmm. and when everyone saw that who was just blown away and i was like how do we get dev stations we need to be on that you know we Everyone was feverishly trying to get on the PS2, and it was really hard to get dev stations, and and they were super expensive. You know, they were, excuse me, I think they were fifteen grand or so. Mm-hmm. That's a for, lot for smaller studios, for sure. Much less, yeah. Big ones. And then ideally, you know, there's a, at minimum one in every department. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, it was really hard to get them because, like, the EAs and the, the big kind of Activisions. Ubisoft, they would get us a lot of other developers at the time acclaim. They were getting the the initial early dev stations because they were going to be delivering huge projects for them, you know, and the, mm-hmm. um, the heart platform maker wanted those projects. So the thing that we didn't see coming was that uh, I call it a kudaragiism, which it was the PlayStation was pretty great. The PlayStation 2 was uh, a strange combination of a series of chips and cell chips and the ways that it strange unseen before ways of synchronizing chips and different types of memory and you know a, a more a, a wider circuit board of, of technology that was uh, communicating to itself mm-hmm. and basically if you go back at that time, first party Sony didn't release a title on PlayStation 2, if I'm correct, until a year after it released. And there was a reason for that, because that's how damn hard it was to develop for that machine. And the the big problem there that the you know game players rarely ever get to hear about is that as a game development studio that was independent, you had to raise money to get it project financing now you're starting to get into the millions of dollars but if you're not delivering on time or if you're going on over over budget that 
deal gets worse for you with time because every time you have to go back to the money well, the terms depreciate for you, even though you're going to wind up doing more work. Mm -hmm. And that's because you couldn't accurately forecast what a budget would be because you, because you just, it was, no one had deep enough access to really understand how it worked. So you had certain companies like uh, Insomniac, but what mostly comes to mind to me is um, uh, Naughty Dog because they had people like Andy Gavin who were just brilliant machine level engineers, right? Like machine level code. Mm -hmm. And they'd get in there and it's like they were doing it on this original PlayStation and that became part of their backbone. And so they were doing things with Crash Bandicoot. Other people just couldn't figure out how to do. They were, they were, you know, jockeying around the system. And they were also very close with Sony. So, you know, they got a little more access. And for us, it was very difficult. For many developers, it was very difficult. We were getting in trouble and we thought we were going to go, go out because we couldn't estimate and we couldn't get our hands around how much the title would actually cost. And at times, you know, you had Kudaragi saying things like, oh, people say our system is difficult, but um, that's not a bad thing because it'll just weed out the the uh, poor programmers. And it was like, what did he just say? You know, so it was, it was kind of offensive mm -hmm. because it wasn't just saying, hey, it was it's a new generation of hardware. We've evolved into new technology and there's a bit of a hard curve here that we all need to really embrace, you know? And, and so it made it way more expensive. And as a, a leap from that, we the Xbox started to emerge and they were really seizing the opportunity to answer a problem that the industry was having, which was how difficult the development environment was and how much it was escalating the costs of projects. And so Microsoft... And Seamus you know, Blackley and Kevin Bacchus and the rest of the guys up there were saying, look, why don't we just, I guess it was Seamus came up with, why don't we just create our own machine? You know, mm -hmm. why, don't, why don't we get take on Sony? And this became like a, a big thing. And when the development community was hearing that Microsoft might be building a really solid developer-friendly console. Now, at the time, Microsoft had a, a brand problem in the entertainment space. So there was a lot of skepticism, right? They're like, they make windows, they don't make movies, they don't make great games, you know, well, they were, they had a game division that was making great games run by Ed Freeze. Mm -hmm. And they were doing like simulator games. And there's a number of great games came out of there. But the point was the larger entity of Microsoft taking over and coming out with a console, does that mean it's going to be like a DOS system? You know, mm -hmm. it, so there was a lot of skepticism and um, Microsoft had a lot of brand uh, perception to bow, battle ahead of them, but they knew it, you know, and that was, you were like, well, whoa, whoa you want to do what? And, and how are you looking at it? And it was mm -hmm. an incredibly huge opportunity to keep your studio alive. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's mm -hmm. actually true. And so... We were like, we got to get on the Xbox because, you know, we don't know how long this takes to deliver on the PS2. And if you don't know how the machine really works, how do you really design for it in a way that's going to make the machine shine? So these these problems were compounding. Microsoft comes along with a solution. And um, and it's being built by, you know, 
people that had built games. And Ed Fries had a lot of, uh, a lot of fans in the development community. He just had this kind of incredible, he wanted to back and support games that were really pushing the medium of what games could be, you know? And so if you go back to that moment in time, not only was it life-saving, but it was um, really exciting because you, you, you saw these, if once you started getting close to the Xbox group, uh, you saw this, this fierce fight that they were going through inside Microsoft, which is, you know, any big, huge, financially powerful company, you know, comes with, and you want to go <laughs> suggesting ideas that they should invest billions of dollars into, which is what the Xbox was, that you're going to have a, you're going to be challenged, you know, they're going to run you through the ringer just to make sure you're, you're going to pull it off. And um, so that just meant there was this team of excitement that was kind of like people were migrating from the rest of Microsoft and trying to get into the Xbox group. And you had, oddly enough, you had more of a startup vibe happening with this camp, but that camp of people had direct access to Bill Gates, and Steve Ballmer. And, and so, you know, you were building games and now you're, you're actually, you know, six degrees of separation and less two degrees of separation from the richest people in the world. Mm -hmm. And that was really sort of changing the stakes and it was really exciting. And people were super passionate and they were fighting for it and, uh, and they delivered. And so that was, that was how we got onto the Xbox without going through the dramas of the publisher acquisitions that were happening, you know, on our home, home front. Um, it was really kind of a lifesaver for us because of that that budget challenge that we were having, which made me a little obnoxiously critical of PS2 at the time. But, you know, when you're losing the fight, <laughs> you lose your cool too. So uh, that's how it was at that time. You know, it's funny you mentioned acquisitions. You had to contend with that then, the PS2 era after making two hit games and then launching into the Xbox One's launch. And that's a big deal there as well. Uh, you mentioned the acquisition elements. It seems to me that acquisitions are coming up more and more of late over the last few years. And it's, you can't, you know, scroll your Twitter timeline without seeing the word acquisition. Uh, does industry consolidation give you pause in any way? Or, and how do you view that uh, kind of given the flux that your studios have gone through? I think that, uh, Anything, anytime you're you're down to two or three companies that you know control an industry, uh, it's a little stifling, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you have a duopoly or something or a triopoly, uh, and and the industry at that time was two things: it was console games or PC games. That was it. You know, there was no cell phones games back then. You know, no free to play, no social games, social networks weren't even invented yet and um that that so today what constitutes the game industry is i don't even know how to get my arms around it quite frankly mm -hmm. you know there's there's um I, I can't tell you how many surprise times i was surprised to just just bump into another mobile company that would be in san francisco and it would have 600 employees and i never even heard of it but it was a games company, you know, before that, you know, back in the PlayStation one era, you pretty much knew who everyone developing 
that was putting out good stuff, who they were in the world. The last time I was at E3 in recent history, I think there was 700 mobile games releasing per day on the planet per day. So, you know, we, we think we see a lot of games. You're not seeing anything compared to what's releasing, you know, like what's really out there. Medicinal gaming is now emerging. Um, there was announcements that's, that's Mike Wilson and, uh, from the game industry, you know, starting up with the medical industry. It's like gaming ther- therapy. Yeah. Okay. Gaming, gotcha. gaming as medicinal therapy. And uh, this is going to be a huge space, gaming as medicinal therapy, because it's already doing it. See, this is what's is that, so weird. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I was, I'm thinking about the way the Wii and the Connect kind of made their way into non-hardcore gamer homes. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that, you know, Deep Wealth DTX and this video game therapeutic aspect, that is kind of the next stage of that. People finding a market and wanting to enter it, and they don't need to be the major player because the name Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, that could be sending some people off of it. So if you've got your treadmill and it's gamified, if you've mm-hmm. got therapy methods and it's gamified, that could be more enticing to the non-gamer. Does that make sense? Does that track? Sure. And what's happening is... is uh... It absolutely makes sense. So if you look at like, um, you know, Benny Terry's our, our uh, partner, and uh, he produced the, uh, the Soulstorm, and you know, it was, we've been working together for a while. But Benny's uh, he was an Olympian bicyclist, and when I a lot of his game ideas they're coming out of um, what he's what he gets on all the rewards to keep on pushing you to work harder in your workout. Right. And he's like, mm-hmm. no, nah, it needs to be another stimulus hit because I don't think I'm going to get up that hill. unless I know I'm going to get another achievement, you know, mm-hmm. so that the uh, the churn of gaming got interpreted by the fitness industry uh, to become more gamified. And it realized people could get healthier, you know, just just from that dopamine hit of, of feeling like you're part of a community you're excelling in that community or you're supported by that community, but really you're just practicing on your rowing machine or your bike, you know, there's mm-hmm. something to that. And when it comes to just to touch on the therapeutic value of gaming, um, Oddworld had a surprising a number and, and, and a lot of companies have experienced this, but a surprising number of, of players that claim that, they didn't do terrible things to themselves or, you know, suicides or because of the games. And some of these stories went on to national news, you know, for Oddworld. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you look at it and you go, let me just give you a really grim statistic. Uh, one that's not talked about is um, England did a study over COVID and the suicide rate amongst youth was five times higher throughout lockdown. Mm. But was what was also higher throughout lockdown was gaming, right? Gaming exploded with COVID lockdown. So there'd be a correlation, but perhaps not a causation? The opposite, which is how many people didn't do that because they still had social connection in a team, in a squad, in a clan. Um, they still, 
were connecting, they were still strategizing, they were still using their mind and socially interacting when a lot of people were denied that. Interesting. And, and so how many lives were saved because of gaming? Now, because of the, the experiences that we had, and like that ours interview, we get into details of specific cases that are just mind blowing. But we knew and I felt this because from day one, I always felt like if you're going to make entertainment, why not try to make it more nutritious? If you were going to make food, why not try to make it more nutritious, right? Mm -hmm. And I just had that kind of philosophy in life of like, games can be a lot of things, but maybe they can be something that makes you feel, feel better, not just because you won, which has value, but because you think about something more contemplative, like a great book or a great movie would give you. You know, and those are things you can use in life, right? Like deeper contemplation gives you a different reflection and, a, and different perspectives and you can solve problems that way, you know, like life problems. And so uh, just some, some people, I mean, some people really get massive dopamine hits from gaming. Some people get it from the fame of being uh, like World of Tanks or Warcraft, you know, what level were you, who, what, what clan were you? And then they'll show up in forums and all of a sudden people are just like, oh my God, you're these guys, you know? And then everyone wants advice and everyone's like, what that does for the uh, human psychology, you know, of the person who's getting recognition, there's, if you could buy that in a pill, would you? How did you feel when you won that game or how does the gamer feel? And this is one of the reasons we wanted infinite, infinite lives. How does the gamer feel if it was hard as hell but, and they so wanted to see that next part of the story and they hate you, the designer for making it that way. But mm -hmm. when they get it, how, how happy are they? Yeah. It's that risk reward, but also the, the feeling of elation when you succeed. I think you've seen a lot of those conversations around the Soulsborne games and recently Elden Ring and totally. you know, that successful moment of I accomplished this, I conquered that. If you could buy it in a pill, would you buy it? I think that's drugs, isn't it? In a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, right? I wonder if uh, you could comment a bit about subscription services and how that impacts kind of the user experience. And then you guys on the developer side, we have tiered systems like the recently announced changes to PlayStation plus you also have Xbox game pass and the ability for developers to launch into there at, at various sizes of games. Mm -hmm. uh, could you comment a bit on, on how those subscription services uh, are, are viewed in your eyes as someone who's kind of been there cutting the deals, jumping systems at various times to make sure the things get done. Well, um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, let me give you an example. I'll give you an example is, and it's around Soulstorm, is we, out of necessity to get the project done, and we were, um, you know, hitting, hitting a number of uh, leg technical debt, legacy issues, and talent issues, and, you know, Game industry is emerging fast, huge companies are paying fortunes. We're just independent self-finance. It's harder to retain, harder to contract companies. A lot of shifting uh, things in the landscape, you know, shifting sands. And the Sony was uh, like, hey, um, we, you know, why don't we do a deal 
and we were, I, I think we were making a PS5, you know, look, look kind of cool. And um, they were like, why don't we do a deal? And the way we were working out the intention of a deal was that we would be free for a month on Plus. Uh, but we were supposed to deliver in January. So at that time, there wasn't going to be any game machines. I mean, you, we were like, how many could we possibly sell? No one ever penetrates more than like 10%, 11% on a, on a new launch. You know, even the most successful titles, you think like, oh, everyone bought this title for that new machine. But then you find out, man, 20% is enormous if someone got that on a new launch right. for a single title. And, uh, and then COVID just completely, uh, you know, kicked us in the gut because we were distributed development across the planet. Now every studio that we're working with is going into lockdown. So now we had, you know, a number of studios in the mix and now all of a sudden they're all locked down and everyone's working from home and no one can hand a controller next to them, to the other person. That's how you build games. Right. So I never would have said, if we said, Oh, COVID's going to lock down, you're just going to have to deliver the game, you know, with no one working together. It was like, we can't do that. I never would have said we can do that, but it was forced upon us and we had to, you know, figure out how to prevail. But that's a long way of saying we, we needed the money to complete the project. And we thought we did a pretty good deal because we were like, well, we got this much money. And, and in January, we, we could, there's no way we'll sell more than this. And that's more than the, that's less than the most we could sell is less than the money we could get. So that seems like good. Let's do the deal. So we did the deal. Now, at no fault to Sony's, just, you know, co and then COVID happened, right? This delayed us from January to April. The deal was still for one free month. What we thought was that we might maybe sell like 50,000 units at launch, you know, or, or you know, maybe 100,000. It was pretty small numbers because there wasn't going to be a lot of PS5s and lockdown had affected, it looked like it was going to affect the number of machines manufactured as well. So there will be shortages at retail, which for our deal would be, you know, kind of a good thing, right? Think Looking at it selfishly, it would be kind of good because then there wouldn't be as many game machines out there to get the free game. Mm -hmm. But because it slipped to April, uh, we had the highest downloaded game on PS5. And it was, I think, approaching, uh, at the end of the day, close to 4 million units or something like that for free because they were all subscription. And so this was the free game for that month to subscribers. So for right. us, it was devastating. Um, and so that's how kind of the economies would work. Before you had free months, you know, you might make a deal on a certain number of units at a certain price, you know, you might have, a, mm -hmm. there's different ways to do it, but right. that's how slipping can really sting the developer. Right. No one did a dirty deed. You know, there's no one, no one played unfair pool. Right. This is just, you know, earth in 2020 and 2021. And so it's, it's yeah. wild to think that for, uh, uh, you know, getting 4 million versus, you know, a hundred, couple hundred thousand, you'd think it's a good thing. Right. Not, not when they're free, but not when they're free. Interesting. Now that's a, a free service versus like a, a, a game pass system, which on the outside, it, it's not the same thing on the developer side. Cause outside looking in, we hear about different deals that go to different studios. Uh, 
do you yeah, think it would have played I mean, similar? I think, uh, and honestly, I'm not the expert on the nuances be- between the services, mm-hmm. but um, I think that I think that's a lot of the reason why Microsoft is was buying so many studios was because if people were like, wait a minute, we're only selling into Game Pass, mm-hmm. you know, or or we're like, what does that mean? They don't they don't pay for games anymore. Do I, you know, what is the actual behavior of the demographics that's doing it? Sure, it's engaged in it, and I so I think what this is this is me just uh, projecting. You know, I'm not um, uh, I'm theorizing because I don't have I'm not speaking as a witness. You know, to decisions that were being made. Sure, but so in my mind, Microsoft thought if you could get on game pass and you're getting special you know access to games then it's more the netflix model Mm -hmm. right you're not so much paying individually you're just paying the network and and i think they were thinking about that way you know i think some of the people were for sure um i can't say that that was the decision making but if you if you think about netflix as the future it kind of makes sense right Mm -hmm. and uh so but i think the developers and publishers look at that more mostly developers because the publishers are going to be going the bigger publishers are going to be going for the triple a's and they're not going to give shit away you know you're going to pay dearly for whatever you know assassins is going to do or call of duty is going to do if you want any kind of exclusivity as a pla- as a platform you know right but uh for the smaller developers there were you know in and for independent developers you know i think of uh of uh uh, you know Tim Tim Schafer's company Double sure. Fine, and, and uh, you know others that were acquired in there, right? Similar caliber, like really good companies, but small lot crowdfunding things like this. Mm-hmm. I think Microsoft knew that if they didn't acquire the companies and provide those development teams, uh, dare I say, maybe a happier life, you know. Mm-hmm. Like we'll we'll buy your company. You guys can get whole and and just do your thing and keep building good games. And I honestly think that's a big part of where where Phil Spencer is coming from. Because and I think Phil Spencer and uh, uh, Chris Charla, you know, the roles that they played, I thought that was really interesting for Microsoft because I I think they were kind of perfect people for the roles because mm-hmm. they they really had a lot of experience and they were they were not executives who came from other industries and just got into games. They were always games, mostly, you know, almost like hardcore. And uh, Phil Spencer was there on the original Xbox launch, you know, um, not running it like he is today. But I think that his idea, and I can't say we've talked about it, you know, but I, I think what his idea was, if we can acquire the developer, give the developer a better life, uh, and you'll never understand how hard it is for a developer until you're a developer. You know, this is just how it is. And if we can give them a better quality of life and they can get whole on their effort from years of work, uh, then then they'll, and we allow them to build great games that they want to build, that they'll be happier and they won't be as concerned about how much, how many sales the game is going to do. So that kind of equation got removed through acquisition. 
I think with the promise of still like, you know, like who wants to tell Tim Schaefer what kind of game to build? Right. Yeah. Right. If you, cause that's constricting to a very creative mind. Yeah. Or Brian Fargo, you know, look what they do on our own, you know, like, like who's gonna, uh, you know, there's a number of people that, uh, got wrapped up in that acquisition spree, but if you're them, you go, okay, so we can, you know, my colleges, my kids' colleges are paid for, <laughs> and I get to make cool games and get paid well. You know, yeah. I don't give a shit how many they sell anymore because they're giving them away. I don't, I don't think you could get people to be building those qualities of games unless you had an offer like that mm-hmm. to entice them to do it. So I guess that's again a, a long answer to it. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Luke. It's great. No, I'm in, I'm enjoying the insight, and I think I'm gonna very bluntly say I'm gonna do a consolidated portion where I, I split some stuff, and then I'm gonna do the extended one uh, as well and send it to both because <laughs> it's just really cool stuff. Like I'm no, thanks. That's very what Mars much... Technica did. You know, yeah, <laughs> mine was the first extended one because the yeah. editor was like, "We shouldn't cut it." You know? Yeah, and then oh, they started cool. their extended series, but I was. I was thrilled with that. Yeah. Well, you're going to be the first XEP extended interview for sure. That's there's no right. doubt about that. Cause I don't want to cut the content, but I am going to trim it for one of the episodes for sure. sure. Um, so tell me, you know, we talked about subscription models and then kind of, you, if you track back a bit, you talked about E3 and kind of the benefits of E3 and getting to see the early ones. Uh, the ESA recently canceled E3 officially. We know that, that we, we knew they weren't going to do an in-person one this year, COVID-related or otherwise. Then the, there was no mention of a digital one. Writing seemed to be on the wall. They've come out now and said E3 is not happening this year. How does an announcement yeah. like that play for you? You were there in the early days. And you know, yeah, I talked to Chris Johnson yeah. and some of the other people that have, have been on here. Stephen Frost was on last week. And yeah. it's, it's, it's got to be well, wild. You know, I was kind of... Um... With the E3, I had sort of lost a lot of love for it because I was hearing a lot of the uh, stories about how costly it was becoming and how publishers were feeling gouged on uh, rates. And, you know, there was just some things that were going on occasionally that was really, you know, like someone couldn't afford, I don't remember who it was, but someone couldn't afford a floor space so they figured out they could rent a lot across the street and then they set that up all legally and then e3 shut them down like Is that devolver I, that sounds like a devolver move I it might <laughs> never underestimate the cleverness of those guys right devolver but um it might have been i don't remember exactly uh you should have mike wilson on sometime you know if you if you haven't had him on you know, he's, he's, he's got an interesting look on things. That's a good idea. Writing that one down. <laughs> okay. And, uh, uh, it, so they were doing things. And I think what happened was the E3 parked tractor trailers in front of their parking lot they had rented. So no one could see it. I remember this sound now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was it. You know, I don't, I don't remember personalities that were involved, but that, that can that type of behavior can lead to people feeling like they're you know um that it's not a i don't know business is always tough but but that seems a little uh dirty pool you know right and so i think a lot of companies uh were were starting to pull out and part of it was positions on um I just knew this from back channel conversations that were happening. It'd be like, why did, why did 
so-and-so publishers just drop out of the ESA? And are they going to be at E3 anymore? Like those things were connected. So ESA was, is, you know, a big part of what it does. It's a lobby group to Washington, D.C. Right. Like, like the, the fans think about it like it's um, I mean, it can be a lot more things. I, you know, I, I, I was close to it with uh, when Douglas Lowenstein was running it and I was on the board of the AIS, which he was as well. A lot of really cool people. Like, you know, there's a lot of cool people that uh, gaming names that were on that board doing good things. But um, at that time, the game industry had a big problem with Washington, D.C., because Washington DC was having, uh, it, it was getting vo very vocal about game, games and violence and Tipper Gore and um, ratings didn't exist. So the ESA figured out and uh, hired Douglas uh, Lowenstein to run it that they needed a presence in, in Washington DC that, and they needed a rating system. Because without that, it was like, you know, <laughs> games are coming out like Mortal Kombat, uh, Mortal Kombat and stuff. Moral yeah, Kombat I remember that became, story. Moral Kombat became the documentary about all this. But uh, Mortal Kombat, yeah, you know, we were pulling out spines and the finishing moves and, you know, all that. And just gratuitousness was, was going through the roof. And now that you could do those kinds of details, you know, gamers wanted to and gamers wanted it. And uh, so some. So, so politically, uh, Doug Lowenstein was a lobbyist in, and um, kind of a great guy to run it, in my opinion, back then. And uh, so if you understand, the game industry didn't have a, a rating system, but it was starting to, you know, show pretty violent stuff and sexualized stuff. And, uh, and then Grand Theft Auto is coming out <laughs> You know, uh, uh, Rockstar is, is starting to emerge and shortly, the, you know, around the same time and just crazy, you know, cool content. And um, so Washington was seizing that, I think, you know, like they do anything, an opportunity to uh, shake down an industry, you know. And uh, but something happened that kind of destroyed that attack. And I think one of the key elements was, I mean, I think like uh, Patty Vines at ESRB is played a big role in this history. Douglas Lowenstein played a big role in this history. And what they what happened was as violent gaming, I mean, totally caught fire and just the industry was exploding and all these, you know, approaching billions of people playing. Violent crime amongst youth was going down. So if what they were theorizing was true, if what Jack Thompson was theorizing was true, and he lost his, uh, he was disbarred right after my debate with him. And uh, anyway, if I had something to do with that, wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, do you remember Jack Thompson? He was trying I to sue do, him. He was a lawyer. He carried around the he, poster board in the room that one time. Yeah, he, he was going around and trying to convince the, families of uh mass shooters that it was the game's fault right so i do so, remember that yep. yep you know that's what he was trying to do and um but how are you going to hold up that argument the game's turning people into psychopaths when 
psychopathic behavior is going down amongst the key demographic that's playing games. You know, so you right. got like this. Go ahead, keep selling that shit and see how far it goes. Far it goes because the data is not on your side. You know, I often so, have to explain to parents yeah. that every major war in human history, on the major epic scales of, of slaughter, took place prior to video games being created. So it wasn't the games <laughs> that was doing it. You know, yeah, Stalin wasn't playing games. Right? Exactly. Yeah, and uh, so. Um, I think I think that was a, a huge part of what was going on at that time. And to I think E3 was also, you know, created out of the it was created out of uh, ESA, of course. But I think part of that was, you know, also the game industry was being treated like second class citizens as CES in in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so CES was the E3 before E3. Right. Except the game industry was like all in the tents in the parking lots and the car stereos and porn had inside, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as the game industry got more powerful, it created E3. And that was the history of that. But then, you know, we touch on like E3 changed. And L.A. is the reason why film production is moving all, all over the world. Because L.A. is a terrible place to shoot. It has all the talent. And they but they'll ream you for fees and insurance and this and that. And, you know, no one has figured out how to milk the film industry like the cities, the city of Los Angeles. Right. That's why all mm -hmm. the shit's being shot in, you know, Asia now and uh, wherever, you know, a lot of in Vancouver, all over the world, because mm -hmm. they're trying to stay, avoid uh, the reaming of Los Angeles, you know? Right. Makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. So hopefully that answered that question. Indeed, it does. Indeed, it right. does. Uh, Lauren, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I so thoroughly enjoyed hearing the insights and the directions that you're able to take take stuff. It was fascinating and educational, and I I can't thank you enough. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't invite you and ask you to please let people know where they can check out not just your your work, but uh, the games, and they're available in so many places now. Let them know. Uh, what they can look, uh, where they can okay, find well, stuff. <laughs> Thanks for that. Well, the recent ones, you know, um, Soulstorm, the Enhanced Edition, you know, we we had some problems at launch uh, for reasons we kind of touched on, but mm -hmm. we resolved, you know, as much as we possibly could. And so I think it's, you know, it's come a long way. But uh, that arrived on Xbox. So you have Soulstorm Enhanced Editions there. And then Stranger's Wrath also just released on Xbox. And uh, it's got some nice things going for it. It's the best looking one yet. And then um, uh, we're on the PS5 store, PS4 store. PS3 is really phasing out, right? But uh, we're on Nintendo. We're on the Switch. We're on um, Xbox. We're on what else? We're on. We're on Switch. We're on. Uh, we were on the Nvidia uh, handheld devices as well. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty much everywhere. We're on Steam. Epic. And I, I think there's some, we're on Epic, uh, you know, which is an interesting store, an interesting future, an interesting technology, right? Like Epic, keep your eyes on Epic. Do you want um, to elaborate? I invite you to elaborate. Well, I just think they, they, if they see the world differently and who else can sue Apple and Google and win? That's a very good way to point it, put it. Is right, a very just, good way just, to put it. There you go, right? And if you know these guys, you know, Jay Wilbur, Mark Green, Tim 
Sweeney and, and the other guys, you know, I mean, they were just hardcore game developers, man. You know, just uh, the real deal. And so seeing that they've actually become, you know, kind of a world power in a way, it's just remarkable because they're the same people. You know, so it's, it's just interesting seeing that whole history. Really but uh, you'll find it there. And there's some news coming up on Steam soon. soon. So I uh, can't wait to announce that. But, uh, uh, and of course, you can follow Oddworld, uh, Oddworld Inc. on Twitter. And, or is it Oddworld Inhabitants? I don't know. It's Oddworld. Sorry, it's not right in front of me. And I'm really, it's always hotkeyed, right? I'm never having to type it in. Don't worry. But, it's uh, Oddworld Inc. There's, and there's Lauren Lanning, my Twitter. And there's Oddworld Inc. Twitter. There's the Facebook group. Uh, official art world which uh has a lot of great discussions and stuff there's the discord groups which is uh odd world discord and um i'm sure i'm missing something but you know it, it, there's a lot of stuff out there on all the different platforms just go to the store google and uh search it sorry see how that became a term that stole it did search? it did <laughs> yeah i'm as gullible as everyone else all right, Luke. Well, it's been a pleasure being on. I really, uh, I really enjoy your your questions, and uh, you know, I, I I look forward to the next time we're able to do this.